We did a pretty ambitious project this year to document how many election deniers are running for statewide office with supervisory powers over elections or federal office, i.e. U.S. Senate or U.S. House. And we found that in a total of 569 races with a Republican candidate, more than half are election deniers, 291. Lordy. Amy Gardner covers voting for The Post. We have spent a lot of time this week talking about the midterms and which party is likely to control the House and Senate next year. But the stakes of the election are bigger than the political control of Congress. If some of these election deniers win their races, they could become secretaries of state, attorneys general, people with a lot of control over local and statewide elections, which could have major consequences for American democracy. Where we are in our democracy is that we trust our elections unless our candidate loses, and that is not a winning model for uh, enduring democracy. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Friday, November 4th. Today, we're giving you a look into how voting is already going across the country, what we're expecting for Tuesday, and what the results could mean for how future elections are run. Crawford, one. Rice, two. Brian, one. Jarvis, two. So I was out in Nevada recently to write a story about a hand count that is actually now underway in Nye County. It's outside of Las Vegas. It's a rural county that used to be known for silver and gold mining and is now known as a place where there are legal brothels. And I attended a training for volunteers who had stepped up to help conduct this hand count. So we have mismatches. So what you would do, I'm not going to make you do it today because right. this is just an exercise. You would go back and on your recount, you would read those races that are a mismatch. And I met a gentleman named Jay Goldberg. Totally. Can I ask everybody your go. age, go. if you don't mind? What's today? Okay, I'm still 70. <laughs> you got to do it. <laughs> Wait, what's your uh, birthday? I sat in with him and his wife and another couple who were conducting sort of a a test run count of maybe 12 ballots to see how long it would take and to learn how to do it. All right, go ahead and read yours. Write down a list. One, two, three. One, two, three. What is this, a dance lesson? Keep going. One, two. One, two, three. And uh, he was engaging and friendly, and he thought that the hand count was a terrific idea. He absolutely believes that something went wrong in 2020 and that there was fraud or mistakes by machines, and uh, thought that a hand count was an excellent idea and the only way in his mind to be sure that the vote count would be accurate in his home county. You get an appearance of an impropriety on a federal election this important. Stop. Stop. Start again. Recount, hand count, everything. Right. Because it, I don't know what it did to our election system. And, nobody and that's why. And can you explain, like, why they're here practicing hand-counting ballots? The training was in preparation to hand-count the ballots for this year's election. 
the impetus for the hand count is the widespread belief among Republicans in Nevada that the 2020 election was rigged. And so he feels like the only way to make sure that an election is reliable is by counting by hand, because voting machines, he says, can't be trusted. That's right. If, if something can be manipulated, it eventually will be. It's that simple. They'll figure out somebody, like everything that is that has been invented for good, somebody has found a way to turn it back. And, you know, he was philosophical and practical, but also optimistic that it was a task that was worth his time. It was going more slowly than the county clerk had hoped it would. But he believed that, you know, if enough people like him were conscientious and careful and willing to give their time, that it would produce results that would improve voter trust in the result. So what was your takeaway from hearing all this from from Jay Goldberg and and hearing about his feelings about hand counts and how that is the way to go for this election? Meeting Mr. Goldberg and sort of hearing his perspective really crystallized for me that there has been such an avalanche of misinformation since 2020, in many cases by people who know that they are sharing misinformation, and let's just go straight to the source, including former President Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. We, We now know, in part from the January 6th hearings, that he knew that the election was not rigged. Um that that had an effect on real people and that that is something that we should have some compassion and understanding for. We all want to believe the people that we trust and the people who we have chosen to be our leaders. And there are lots of reasons why people like Mr. Goldberg voted for President Trump and probably would vote for him again. And it's hard to separate out the policies that President Trump pursued that people agreed with from the statements that he has made that are false. That's my that's my takeaway. There are people out there in some ways who have been made to be victims of all of this misinformation. I hear that, and, and I agree with that. Um, but at the same time, I mean, in the case of Jay Goldberg, he is going to be helping to do the count in his county come election day. And I mean, it does seem like there's obviously a real problem there if the people who are uh, in charge of elections are also people who believe in or are perpetuating misinformation about that. So so what are the the concerns that are coming up about how this election is going to play out um, when you have election misinformation being so prevalent? Well, I mean, the top concern about this election, in in my opinion, is whether enough election deniers win and hold wind up holding office with supervisory authority over elections that will give them power to further thwart the will of the people. In Nye County, it's worth telling our listeners, the clerk in Nye County, who is an election denier named Mark Kampf, He opted to continue to use their Dominion machines, which means that the 
paper ballots will be tabulated by electronic tabulators. Those results will be the results that we see on election night, the unofficial results. Those will also be the results that are used for the canvas, which is the official tally that gets submitted to the Secretary of State's office within 10 days of the election. The hand count is really more like an audit. It's more of a show. And I don't mean show in a critical way. I mean, it's just it's more of a, a demonstration that these people are now continuing to do, even though they're also using the electronic machines, to see if it matches. I don't know whether that process will produce more or less trust. It really depends on how accurate the hand count is. And that's the other problem with hand counts. Hand counts are prone to error. And they're much more vulnerable to fraud. You have individual humans putting, you know, hash marks on tally sheets. I will say this. Mr. Kampf, the clerk, has set up a rigorous process where teams of five people are counting batches of 50 ballots at a time. And there's someone who reads out the results. And there's a second person who's looking over the ballot, making sure that person is reading the results accurately. And then there are three people with tally sheets who are putting those hash marks down for each of the names that the reader reads out. And if at the end of that 50-batch process, the three tallier's sheets don't match, they start the batch over for the just for the results that don't match up. So it's incredibly arduous and rigorous, but even though that sounds like it's going to produce accurate results, the question is, when the heck are those results going to be completed? So how does what's happening in Nye County, Nevada, relate to what's going on in the rest of the state? Well, it's worth noting it's it's not a tiny county. It's a county of about 53,000 people. And that's a lot, even though it's nothing compared to the major metropolitan regions of the country. Just to give you an idea, though, that it's going to take them a long time. Imagine how long it would take Vegas. But it's also an example that's playing out in other places. Elko County, Nevada, is also doing a hand-counted audit. And there are isolated communities around the country in Arizona and New Mexico and Colorado that have also adopted hand counts. And and so it's an example of, of a phenomenon that's playing out in places around the country. So, Amy, can you talk a little bit more about what is at stake here when we're seeing these candidates running for all kinds of offices who are, in many cases, purveying these lies about stolen elections? I think that there is a really terrific example of what is at stake in the Secretary of State's races in Nevada, where a gentleman named Jim Marchant is running for Secretary of State against a Democrat, Cisco Aguilar. Marchant's former state legislator. He lost a congressional race two years ago, and he contested his result. His election denialism actually was about his own race in 2020, but then he jumped on the Trump election denial bandwagon and immediately announced his candidacy for secretary of state. The current secretary of state is a Republican, but she's not an election denier. She was censured by the Republican Party of Nevada after what she described as her ministerial role certifying the presidential results in Nevada in 2020. But she's also termed out, so she's not running this year. Jim Marchant could, if he wins, on the first day in office in January, with the stroke of a pen, decertify all of the election machines in Nevada. That sounds really bad. State law requires counties to use only certified machines. Wow. And... 
it's the Secretary of State's office that sets the standards for what is a certified machine. Now, would there be a lawsuit? A hundred percent. The Nevada Supreme Court is a Democratic-controlled body. It's entirely possible that his activism would be stopped in its tracks, but maybe it wouldn't. Maybe he would be using a power that is his in the statutes, and maybe the Supreme Court would rule that way. Amy, I'm getting goosebumps as you're <laughs> describing this. Well, and not in a good way, obviously. Right. I mean, think about Clark County, Nevada, where Las Vegas is, or Washoe County, where Reno is, having to hand count, not being able to use those machines mm-hmm. to run elections. It's impossible. It would take weeks and weeks and weeks, and it would create chaos, and it would just to use the cliche, it would sow even more mistrust in our elections. After the break, we'll hear about the legal battles being fought over the votes that have already been cast in this election. We'll be right back. So, Amy, how has early voting been going so far? The reports that I've received is that voting is going quite smoothly. Early in-person voting has been robust and election officials prepared and are perhaps being more vigilant than ever. There are millions and millions of people around the country who have voted, according to Michael McDonald at University of Florida, who've gone in and voted and walked out. I interviewed a woman this week who runs the Carter Center, Jimmy Carter Center in Atlanta. Her name is Paige Alexander. And she has been volunteering as a nonpartisan poll observer in Fulton County, where Atlanta is. And she said it's been like watching paint dry, and that's a good thing. Hmm. So that is happening, you know, by the thousands. And that's important to remember, too, for solace. And what about red flags? Like, are we seeing places where things have not been going so smoothly for voters? There have been some red flags, uh, not so much in the voting procedure, but in the legal battles that are brewing and already forming. In Pennsylvania, Republicans have sued to block the counting of mail ballots where the voter neglected to put the date on the envelope. And Democrats argue that that's just blatant attempt at voter suppression and comes on the heels of Republicans discouraging their own voters from voting by mail. Mm. So they know that the pool of mail voters tilts Democratic, and now they're trying to discount some of those votes. Mm. It is entirely appropriate, the Democrats argue, for ballots that are not received before election day or by election day that don't have a date on them not to be counted. But to not allow the counting of ballots that arrive before election day, which were obviously cast before election day because of what Democrats describe as a technicality, sounds like an intentional attempt to disenfranchise voters. And you said that's in Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. Are there other places where you're seeing those legal battles already playing out over ballots that have already been cast in this election? Another really interesting case, it's not about accepting ballots, but it's about intimidating voters and it relates to absentee ballots. It's playing out in Arizona. And mm. it's a really interesting case where groups of pro-Trump Arizonans have been staking out ballot drop boxes, in some cases armed, and 
voters have alleged that they've been intimidating them. They've been yelling at them or accusing them of ballot harvesting, which is illegally depositing other people's ballots in states that don't allow that. And several, a couple of different uh, voting rights groups, including League of Women Voters, sued. And a judge this week issued a temporary restraining order uh, really proscribing those activists' activities around ballot drop boxes. It's going to get appealed. It's been appealed. But it's a fascinating story. And another important event that happened over the last week, as we all know, is that Nancy Pelosi's husband was attacked in his home by someone who was looking for her, the House Speaker, of course. And that same day, the Department of Homeland Security put out an advisory about heightened threat level for attacks and violence against voters and election officials. So I feel like that's a really important ingredient in this stew that is, you know, cooking and as we approach Tuesday. So then what is your expectation of whether actual Election Day voting is going to go smoothly or if the legal battles that we've seen so far are just a preview of all the disputes and challenges and chaos that's bound to come? I am not in the business of predicting. One of my sort of like North Stars as I try to do this job is to lay out all the possibilities so that readers aren't surprised by what happens. Mm. I think violence is a possibility. I think election deniers who lose their races contesting their results is an extreme possibility. Carrie Lake, the Republican nominee for governor in Arizona, announced with great fanfare that she's hired a lawyer who's a Republican National Committee woman to do her election day you know, legal scrutiny. And it's kind of a shot across the bow that she plans to contest her results. Uh, She is among uh, at least 12 Republican nominees for governor or Senate who declined to tell us whether they would accept the results if they lose. So I think that there are a lot of forces at work that are alarming. I really do. But I also think that election officials, especially at the local level. These are hardworking public servants who are members of their communities who have spent inordinate amounts of time this year preparing, preparing for the chaos, Mm -hmm. creating greater transparency, opening their offices up to give people tours and to show them how the machines work, to invite them to sign up as poll observers. And those individuals are, in many cases, cautiously optimistic because they have put in so much preparation for Tuesday. I want to talk a little bit more about states. You've obviously raised a bunch of different states where we're already seeing these battles happen. But for people who are going to be watching on Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday uh, (laughs) to see who's going to have control of the Senate and the House and trying to get the full picture of the country, what are the states that— we're going to be waiting on? Like, what What are the states that you think are going to prove the big problems um, for the days after the election? And are, are they going to be the same ones as 2020? Or are we looking at a different picture? It's definitely a Venn diagram. I don't know if it's going to be exactly the same. And it's hard to predict, of course. You know, there's um, an election clerk's prayer that they joke about at conferences. <laughs> what is the prayer? May the candidates win by a large margin. Because <laughs> <laughs> then it's just easier and it's you're done. not. Yeah. Yep. There's yeah, yeah, no yeah. contesting of elections. So, um, I mean, you say that, and I feel like at this point in election den- denialism, like that doesn't really matter anymore, right? Well, 
it doesn't matter if their candidate still loses. I mean, that's that's the rub. I mean, where we are in our democracy is that we trust our elections unless our candidate loses. And that is not a winning model for uh, enduring democracy. Of course. So the places that I'm going to be paying attention to, Georgia, Arizona, Nevada, uh, Wisconsin. And that's largely because I think those races are very, very close. And they were contested in 2020. I mean, the race for governor and Senate and secretary of state races in Nevada are extraordinarily close. The race for U.S. Senate, Herschel Walker versus Raphael Warnock in Georgia, extraordinarily close. Same for Carrie Lake versus Katie Hobbs for governor in Arizona. And the uh, Senate race in Pennsylvania. I think that the conventional wisdom is that the governor's race in Pennsylvania is not as close. That's Josh Shapiro, the current attorney general, Democrat, against Doug Mastriano, probably the most ardent election denier in the land. And it's an important one because the governor in Pennsylvania appoints the secretary of state who certifies the election results. So, But that one seems to be out of reach for Republicans at this moment. Amy, uh, earlier on, you talked about a project you did where you learned that more than half the Republicans running for statewide offices are election deniers. So what else can you tell me about what you learned? Uh, The vast majority of those are uh, candidates for Congress, of course, Mm because, you know, there's 435 seats. It's worth noting that there were already in Congress 147 Republicans who voted against the electoral counting on Mm. January 6, 2021. That number would grow, though. And will grow because many of those congressional candidates are in safely Republican seats. So you're going to have a wing of the Republican caucus in Congress that's going to be even more extreme on election denialism than it was a year, two years ago. And I think that's important. And then the other thing that's important is how many governors, secretaries of state, which we've already talked about, but also attorneys general, who file lawsuits. Ken Paxton of Texas was a leading, you know, assistant to President Trump in trying to overturn the results in 2020 by filing a lawsuit. Even lieutenant governors have an important role. In many cases, they supervise the, their their state senate, and that's power over legislation. And in some cases, is power over the the meetings of the electors after a presidential race. So there are deep implications for election deniers being in these offices. So then to you, what is the worst case scenario that you're thinking about when it comes to what could happen if if some or many of these election deniers end up being elected or reelected? I mean, the worst case scenario, the popular will of the American electorate is thwarted in the 2024 presidential election. We don't have enough information, obviously, about the results of this election to know if that would be possible. You'd have to have enough battleground states whose electoral votes add up to a difference-making number with the power to assign different electors or refuse to certify the results or or a tied electoral college vote in which the House decides by state delegation and the Republicans control a majority of state delegations in the House. There are different scenarios that could lead us to that place. There are a couple of guardrails that are in place that would 
help prevent that. One is that the president of the Senate is Kamala Harris and is a Democrat and would not, would be even less likely to do what Trump wanted Mike Pence to do last Mm -hmm. year on January 6th. Another guardrail is there is a movement that appears to have the potential to succeed to pass a new version of the Electoral Count Act, which governs the procedure that we all witnessed on January 6, 2021, and make it less murky and much clearer Mm -hmm. that the Congress's role on that day is simple and ministerial. You will count the official electoral votes that were submitted to you by the governor of the states, period, full stop, end of story. But but what are are the chances that something like that is actually going to pass? It's actually, uh, Mitch McConnell supports it. It's it's possible. I mean, it's going to be less possible after January. So, and I don't know how likely it is that they could get it done this year, but it is possible and there is support for it that's bipartisan. So what level of alarm should we all be feeling right now (laughs) when we think about the chances that our election, that both this election and 2024 are headed off the rails? I mean, do you feel like there is reason to be optimistic that there's actually a a best-case scenario here? I do. I talked about what I've heard from election officials who are cautiously optimistic and who have just had their noses down and been doing their jobs and uh, have, you know, persuaded their local communities that it's okay where they are. It's possible that things go okay. The problem is that you still have this giant elephant in the room, which is Donald Trump, who continues to say blatantly false things about 2020. And he's going to say false things about 2022. I told you I don't like to predict, but that's one that I feel comfortable predicting. (laughs) Amy, thank you so much for explaining all of this. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. That was Amy Gardner. She covers voting for The Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's episode was produced by Renny Svarnovsky. It was mixed by Sean Carter, and it was edited by Lucy Perkins. Our executive producer is Maggie Penman. Our supervising senior producer is Rena Flores. Ted Muldoon is our senior producer, and my co-host is Elahe Izadi. Lucy Perkins is our editor. Our producers are Eliza Dennis, Sharla Freeland, Alana Gordon, Ariel Plotnick, Arjun Singh, Jordan Murray Smith, and Renny Svarnovsky. Sabi Robinson and Emma Talkoff are our assistant producers. Sean Carter is our engineer. The post-director of audio is Renita Jablonski. And on Sunday, we are going to have a special bonus episode for you about daylight saving time and why no one in this country can agree on what to do about it. Until then, I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back with more stories from The Washington Post.